Welcome to the Encounter Church Podcast. We believe this message will encourage you as you grow your faith and your relationship with Jesus. Grab your notebook and a pen as we get right into the message. All right, all right. So we are in a series called Not What, But Who. And today we're going to continue in this series through the book of Hebrews where we discover that our walk with Jesus is not simply a matter of what we are, but who we are. In fact, we can utilize this title of a Christian. It's not a fact that we can utilize this title of a Christian, but that we can truly display that we are a follower of Jesus, that our DNA, the very nature, is the very nature of God. We run, we coincide with the nature of God. And we have to be careful not to drift away in the midst of this journey, guys, And we have to remain focused and remember who we are and who Jesus is to us. See, that's the other part that I love about this, not what but who title, is we're not talking about just what we are as Christians, but who we are. We're also talking not just about what Jesus is, but who he is. Because sometimes we can get so caught up in what Jesus is that we forget who Jesus is. We get so caught up in the things that we forget the who. So today, we are going to keep pushing forward through this series. We're going to move into chapter 5, and we're talking about maturity. Guys, this one's going to be fun for me because I can be kind of immature. I mean, I really feel that as a guy, we never really mature past like the age of 16, you know, I I hear a lot of amens from women and a lot of heads. I see a lot of heads nodding, and guys are kind of like, well, you know, it's the truth. We still laugh at things that we probably shouldn't laugh at. So you get me, a guy who can be kind of immature sometimes, talking about maturity, but thankfully there is a difference in human maturity and maturity in Christ. But there's kind of some things that run parallel with each other in both. And we're going to talk about that today. So we're going to push forward. We're going to get into chapter 5. And our main text for the day is going to come from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And it says, There is much more I would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and does not know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have recognized, have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Wow. Wow. It seems almost that the author is exasperated with them in verse 11. He says, there is much more that we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Guys, that should be stepping on people's toes. I know it got me whenever I was reading this. That's another thing, guys. I felt like I was being hit with a club as I was prepping for this message. And as I was getting ready, I felt like, man, this is 
coming straight at me. So if you feel like it's coming at you, just know that it came at me first. So, man, whenever he says that you are spiritually dull and you don't seem to listen, I was like, man, how many times has God thought that about me? How many times has he thought, you should be teaching other people, but I'm still teaching you this stuff? And see, there's a thing that we do sometimes where we start asking God to take us to the next level. You know, we're like, God, take us to the next level, take us to the next level, take us to the next level. And he said, you haven't even made it past this one yet. And I kind of like to think of it as sometimes we say, God, can you give us a cake? Can you give us a cake? Can you give us a cake? And he said, well, I gave you flour, and I gave you milk, and I gave you eggs, and I gave you sugar. Make your cake. You haven't made it. You haven't done the steps yet to get it to the next level. You have everything that you need right there, but you haven't stepped into it yet. You have all of the items necessary, but you're not there. You haven't done the steps. And I feel like that's what maturity is. Maturity is realizing that we have everything that we need already. We just have to do the work. And the work is the hard part sometimes, guys. So if we really want to summarize the entire book of Hebrews, it can be pretty well summed up in one verse. It's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. And it says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. And let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Guys, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in the church today. Far too many churches across America are playpens for babies instead of being workshops for adults. That statement really hurt me. But it's true. We have way too many spiritual babies who should be adults by now that haven't got out of the playpen and moved into adulthood. Guys, that's rough. It was rough, it was rough, to, it was rough to read. It was rough to see. And I was debating on whether or not I was going to say it, but it's true. We have way too many spiritual babies who have been babies for 30 years. In my opinion, that's why we have so many problems today in the church. That's why we see churches that aren't actually making a difference in their community. That's why we see communities that are dying and busting hell's gates wide open. Because we have a bunch of babies. We have people that should be equipped that aren't equipped. We have people that want to go over and over and over again and again and again the basic things and never actually put the ingredients together to make the cake. Guys, this is going to be a rough message. Maturity is something that I really believe the church is lacking. So we may know who we are and what we value. But if we act like children, we're going to keep fighting over who gets to do what. See, we say we know the church, and we know the church values, and we can say the mission statement, and we can tell you our core beliefs, but we still argue about who gets to do what, and who gets to be aware, and who gets to be on the stage when, and who gets to do this. That's a sign of immaturity. See, 
one of the purposes of the church is to help everybody grow spiritually, emotionally, mentally, in every way, and we have to have balanced Christian living. We have to walk side by side with one another and aid to aid in the pursuit of maturity in every way. Mental maturity, physical maturity, spiritual maturity, emotional maturity. Guys, we have to mature. We have to stop acting like spiritual children. So that led me to this question. If I'm going to talk about maturity and we're going to say what we need to do to mature, first we have to figure out what maturity is and maybe what maturity isn't. So before we get into what maturity is, I'm going to bust four myths about what maturity is and tell you what maturity is not. So first, maturity is not age. Age has absolutely nothing to do with maturity. It doesn't matter how long you've lived and how long you've been a Christian. You can be a Christian for 50 years and be a 50-year-old baby. I've seen some 50, 60-year-old kids in my life. Maturity has nothing to do with the number of years that you have been on this earth. Now, God's desire is that we grow as we get older and that as we get older, we do mature, but that's not always the case. Sometimes you can get hung up and never mature, and that's sad, especially when it happens for years and years and years and years and years when you're hung up on one thing that you just can't get past. But I've seen it happen, guys. Maturity is not an appearance. Anyone can look mature. Have you guys seen them, the people that they dress really, 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 really nice, but they're super immature people? You can dress as nice as you want. You can have your hair cut right. You can have, you know, if you're a guy, you can have your beard cleaned up, nice trimmed. You can have every clean cut look, but be very, very immature. I've seen it with my own eyes, guys. I've seen people that you look at them and you're like, wow, they are a very dignified person. They look like they've got it all together. They look like they should just kill it and they're immature. The fact is you can look very spiritual and not be spiritual at all. It has nothing to do with your appearance and everything to do with your heart. That one kind of hurts. Anyone can fool someone for 30 minutes on a Sunday. Anyone can look the part and look like they have everything together and really be a wreck on the inside. Maturity has nothing to do with your achievements. You can accomplish a lot, be very successful, and still be immature. There's a lot of very immature millionaires out there. They're super successful, but it didn't buy them maturity. Guys, maturity has absolutely nothing to do with achievements and accomplishments. You can be ultra successful. You can have everything together and still not be mature. And the last one is maturity has nothing to do with academics. I know some super smart people that are still very immature. doesn't matter how many degrees you've gotten. It doesn't matter how long you went to school. None of that stuff matters when we're talking about maturity. Maturity has nothing to do with how smart you are. It has nothing to do with how successful you are. It has nothing to do with how you look, and it has nothing to do with how old you are. If you look through the Word of God and you read the Bible... God pretty much sums maturity up with one word, and that one word is attitude. 
Attitude is what's going to make the difference. Attitude is what's going to determine whether you're mature or not. God wants you to grow up, and he wants you to have a Christ-like attitude. The author of Hebrews emphasizes the importance of maturity and how much we need it over and over and over again all throughout the book. In chapter 5 alone, we discover five insights, five keys to maturity. We're going to get into that right now. So we've talked about what maturity isn't. Now we're going to talk about what maturity is and how mature people act. And the first thing that mature people do is a mature person is positive under pressure. Guys, this one is super plain. As we get through these five points, right, they're all going to be super plain on the outside. And the longer we go, the tougher they're going to, the tougher they're going to be to do. So point one It's going to be a little bit easier than point two, easier than point three, easier than point four, easier than point five. But they're all super obvious. They're just very difficult things to do, and we're going to expound on them and talk about what the Bible says about this stuff, right? So a mature person is positive under pressure. Hebrews 5, 7, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers, and because of his deep reverence for God, or because of his deep reference for God. Like Jesus, we have to know where and who to go to when we're under the pressures of life. See, guys, whenever Jesus felt the pressure, whenever Jesus was feeling that discomfort, whenever he was feeling the pressure of life, he prayed about it. He didn't go tell everyone. He didn't tell everybody all the problems that he was going through. He took it to God. And we see whenever he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever the pressure honestly was at its highest, whenever he was under so much pressure that he was dropping sweats like, he was dropping drops of sweat like blood, and the anxiety was high and the pressure was there, he took three of his closest friends and he went and got by himself and he prayed. Guys, you can have friends, but know who that inner circle is. Jesus had a lot of followers, but whenever he needed to get something done, he always kicked everybody out of the room but three. Anytime the pressure was high, the stakes were high, Jesus didn't want a lot of people in the room. And that's okay. You just need to know who needs to be in the room. The room doesn't always need to be full. You don't need to take every single problem you have to every single person you know. Empty out the room, know who your inner circle is, and take your problems with them to God. That's how you stay positive under pressure, guys. God is the one that can take the weight off of you. God is the one who is always with you. Jesus was our perfect example of this and what we should do with pressure. When pressure rises, he would pray. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? Everyone knows Philippians 4, 6. Pretty well everyone can tell you the don't be anxious part, right? But a lot of people drop off at verse 7. And verse 7 is the best part. It says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. That's why when the pressures of life are pushing in on you and when anxiety is high, take it to God. Because the only thing that is going to guard your heart and guard your mind 
is the peace that comes from God whenever you take all of this pressure and all of this anxiety and you throw it onto him. He's got big shoulders. He can carry it. He can take all of our problems. We just have to take it to him and leave it there. We can't pick it up as soon as we leave the prayer and pack it right back on our back and say, I guess I'm going to have to carry this for the rest of my life. A mature person knows when to take things to God and knows how to leave them there. That's point number one. Point number two is a mature person is sensitive to people. Guys, if I'm being 100% transparent, this one is one that I kind of struggle with a little bit. I am a very much suck it up and get the job done type of person. Um, I, that's just how I've always been. I've been problems are going to happen, suck it up and keep moving. I'm not very sensitive sometimes. Like problems are going to come, you adapt, you overcome your obstacle and you keep pushing forward. You move on. That's how I was raised. That's how I've approached life. And it led me to kind of not be super sensitive to people. But as you look throughout the Bible, it says that mature people are sensitive to other people. That one was tough for me. Um, In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9, it says that Jesus became the source for our eternal salvation for all those who obey him. See, sometimes I miss this point. Jesus became the source of salvation for us. The Bible says that he came to seek and save. Maturity is a process of taking the focus off me and putting it on other people. Guys, that was super tough when I realized that being sensitive to other people is what God wants out of us. The easy part for me was realizing that I needed to take the focus off of me and put it on others. See, one of the things that I learned about music is it doesn't really matter as much the notes that you play. It matters the ones that you don't. And a a really good friend of mine, a mentor of mine, gave me that advice a long time ago. He said, just like anyone can be quiet and... You assume that they're wise, but when a fool opens his mouth, you remove all doubt, right? It says that in the Bible. It's the same with music. He told me, what if I told you that you could sound like a better guitar player by not playing? And at first, I was offended. I was like, bro, you tell me I'm bad? And he said, no, I'm not telling you you're bad. He said, I'm telling you that a good musician leaves space for other musicians. The best musicians in the world know how to play their instrument and stay off of other people's toes. See, whenever we're all walking and we're all, and we're all like trying to cover all the parts, music is going to sound muddy and jumbled and you're going to be your sound man's nightmare because all of the instruments are playing all of the frequencies all the time. All of the vocalists are singing all of the parts all the time. Nobody is actually doing their part and staying in their lane everybody's all over each other's toes all the time, and music sounds like nothing but a jumbled mess. But whenever you take the attention off of you, and you realize that this whole music thing isn't about me, it's about us, it's not about how good I sound, it's about how good we sound, then you start to realize that, man, it's not as much the notes that I play, it's the notes that I don't. It's the space that I leave for other people. It's me not getting in their way and me staying in my lane. 
And guys, that is a sign of maturity as a musician. Perfect example is every young guitar player that I've ever met wants to play every lick they've ever learned in every single song. You see them, they're up there and they're trying to shred and they're trying to shred. Drummers are the same way. Sorry if we have any drummers here. If, if we do have any drummers here, see me after service because we need more. But I'm going to make fun of you for a minute. Um, <laughs> like young drummers get up there and they want to play every lick they've ever learned in every song. I'm like, bro, it's not about that. It's about how we can serve the song, how we can sound good together as a group. Not how good you can sound on your own. You're good. If you weren't good, you wouldn't be up here. Like, we get it, you're good, but now serve this song. That's a sign of maturity as a musician, and it's also a sign of maturity as a person. It's also a sign of spiritual maturity when you realize that not everything is about me, and in fact, nothing is about me, and everything is about what I can do for other people. See, that part was easy for me to understand. The being sensitive part isn't. I love to serve people, but... I'm not super sensitive about people when they have problems. I'm like, yeah, I've got problems too. Everybody does. Get over it. You know, and I had to really overcome that. And one thing that helped me overcome that was reading through Scripture, right? Because if we're supposed to be like Jesus, then we first have to understand who Jesus is. So as I was really struggling with understanding how to look at people and see them as God sees them, I just started reading through the New Testament, and I started reading about Jesus specifically, and we see several times where it says that Jesus was moved with compassion, right? Or it says moved by compassion, or filled with compassion, or he looked at them with compassion. We always see the word compassion whenever Jesus was dealing with a large group of people, or even people one-on-one. It says moved by compassion, moved with compassion, filled with compassion. Jesus always had compassion, so I started looking up what compassion meant, And I was like, yeah, it's the same definition that I've always known. But then I looked up the word that they used in the Greek. I would tell you it, but I don't speak Greek. I'm not that smart. So I can't tell you the word, but I can tell you what it means. And it's actually a made-up word. The only place we see this Greek word is in the Bible. Specifically, the only place we see this Greek word is not only just in the Bible, it is only in the Gospels. Not only is it only in the Gospels, it is only used when referencing Jesus. This one Greek word is used nowhere else in the world except for in reference to Jesus. And it does not solely mean compassion. It means to look at someone in pain that is hurting or lost and feel a twisting of the intestines. Guys, whenever Jesus saw lost, hurting, broken people, he wasn't just filled with compassion. He felt like his insides were being ripped apart. He felt literal, physical pain when he saw lost people. It wasn't just a funny feeling that he got in his stomach whenever he saw someone and was like, oh, I need to help them. He had pain that he felt on the inside like his stomach was being ripped apart and it wouldn't stop until he did something about it. That's the compassion that Christ had. That's also why anytime it says that he saw the hurting, the lost, the desperate people and he was moved by compassion, 
He never left them alone. He didn't say, oh, wow, there's a hurting person. I'm going to go over here. He felt so much pain that until he helped them, he wouldn't stop hurting. He hurt for the hurt until their hurt went away. Guys, that's how we are supposed to look at the lost. That's how we're supposed to look at the hurting. That's how we're supposed to look at the desperate people in our community. We're supposed to look at them and feel so much pain for them that until their pain goes away, ours just doesn't go away. And I think that's where we miss it is we have the, we have the empathy part down. I, th- I think that we can safely say that we can look at people who are hurting and feel empathy for them and say, oh, wow, that, that's terrible. I'm sorry you're going through that. I'll pray for you. But how many times do we leave that conversation and never even say a prayer about it? Because, see, we have empathy down. We lack action. Compassion is empathy with action. There's a difference between empathy and compassion. Anyone can look at someone with empathy and say, oh, wow, that's a terrible situation. I'm sorry you're going through that. Compassion is saying, oh, wow, that's a terrible situation. How can I help? We lack compassion. We have empathy. Guys, we're, doing, we're great on empathy. We can see the hurting and tell that it's a terrible situation and feel sorry for them. But compassion takes that to the next level and then says, what do I, how can I help? What do I need to do? Is there anything that I can do to help you? And then actually do it and follow through with it and walk it out with them until their situation is better. That's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't look at the hurting and leave them hurting. He looked at the hurting, was moved by compassion, and then healed the hurt. What are we doing with the last part of that? What are we, what are we doing to help the hurt? That's what mature people do. They take it past just the empathy level and move into compassion. We can see what Paul kind of has to say about this in Philippians. Philippians 2.4 says... Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others. See, a Christian doesn't just look out for his own needs. He sees the needs of others as well. And we can't stop at simply seeing the need. We have to meet that need with action. Anyone can see a need only if you actually meet the need. We need to be the few. This church is so equipped to, to meet the needs of this community. We just need to start doing it. See, insight number three is, as like I told you guys, this one, it, as we keep going, they, get, they are obvious, but they get harder and harder to do. Insight number three is a mature person has self-control. This one's hard. This one's real hard. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. It says, if you read that thoroughly, even Jesus had to learn self-control. Do you find yourself struggling to maintain control, right? We find ourselves very much like Paul where he says, I am oh too human in chapter 7 of Romans. Self-control starts with tongue control. I'm going to say that one one more time. Self-control starts with tongue control. How much trouble do we get ourselves into just by speaking? 
Remember earlier how I said that a wise person can keep their mouth shut, but a fool removes all doubt when they open their mouth? How many times should you have just not said anything? For me, I stopped counting the amount of times that I should have just not said anything. But I have a problem with that. I'm, I'm still working on it, and I'm learning, and I'm getting a lot better at just keeping my mouth shut. And then people think I'm mad. And I'm like, bro, no, you just don't want to know what I have to say. Like, I'm, I'm not mad. I'm completely fine. You just don't want to know. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But yeah, Paul says that I'm oh too human, and that's what I believe where he talks about he does the things that he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do the things that he does want to do, and he is oh too human. The flesh gets in the way so much, but self-control starts with tongue control. We get in trouble and we say what we think, so maybe I should have said that self-control can maybe start with mind control. If you start controlling these thoughts and start taking these thoughts captive, then maybe the words wouldn't come out of your mouth because they never first popped into your mind. What are you thinking? What are you thinking right now? What do you think whenever pressure comes up? Because I've always heard that you squeeze an apple and you get apple juice. Whenever pressure is pushing in on you, what is inside is going to come out, right? Self-control starts with controlling your mind. Then it comes from controlling your tongue. See, we need to have control over what we think and over what we say. As our high priest, Jesus modeled self-control when he was suffering on the cross. <clears throat> it says, but when leading the priest and the elders made their, when the leading priests and elders made their accusations against Jesus, he remained silent. It says, but Jesus made no response to any of the charges. Guys, Jesus was being accused of a lot of things that he did not do. And he was getting ready to be put to death on a cross for stuff that he didn't do. And he didn't say a word. He was silent. He was quiet. He didn't argue. He didn't debate him. He could have, and he would have been right, but he didn't do it. He knew what had to be done, and he went ahead and he did the job. He didn't say what was on his mind because he didn't say anything. Which leads me to my next little paragraph here, and it's a fun one. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, I just say what's on my mind? Yep, I've heard it. I've done it, right? But let's look at what the Bible has to say about just saying what's on our mind. The Bible reminds us that the power of life and death comes from the tongue. Our words have the power of life and death in them. If we're not careful, we can allow our words to show how immature we really are in our heart. Yep. It's a tough one. If you, mm, I don't know if y'all are ready for this verse. James 1.26 says, if you claim to be religious but can't control your tongue, you're a fool and your religion is worthless. you claim to be religious, but you can't control your tongue, you're a fool and your religion is worthless. Guys, as I was reading this verse, I was like, wow, because I felt my toes like curl up probably like three or four inches. I was trying to get them out of the way from being stepped on. And then I was like, man, do I really have to tell other people this? But God was like, yeah, you sure do. Because if you needed to hear it, they need to hear it. It says, you're a fool and your religion is useless. That's pretty harsh. But think about the damage that your words can do. 
Think about the damage that it can do to your testimony. Think about the damage that it can do to the kingdom in general. If you claim to be a Christian, but your words don't line up with that, that what a Christian should be. You're not just damaging your witness. You're not just damaging your testimony. You're not just damaging your life. You're at that point potentially damaging the kingdom of God. Because you represent God all the time when you claim Christianity. You don't get to turn it on and off like a light switch. You are always a representation of yourself, of God, and of this church. And if you're out there and you can't control your mouth... You're not just damaging yourself and your own personal life. You're damaging your reputation. You're damaging the reputation of the church. And most importantly, you're damaging the reputation of God. Because you claim to be a Christian, but you're not speaking like one. Then people think, well, if that's a Christian, why would I want to be that? You're damaging so much more than yourself when you can't control your mouth. Guys, that one was a tough one. It was a tough one to hear, and it was a tough one especially for me because I can be really sarcastic. I speak sarcasm fluently. I had to, it was like like English is a second language to sarcasm to me sometimes. I had to learn not to be sarcastic because I was damaging so much more than myself. I was damaging my reputation as a believer, my reputation as a leader, my reputation as a member of a church, and most importantly, the reputation that God has, because people were like, wow, if he's a believer, if he claims to be a Christian, and he's that sarcastic, and I'm this sarcastic, why in the world do I need to change? I had one really big eye-opening moment, and if you want, we can talk about it sometime. But I had a huge eye-opening moment that made me like, I really need to control what I say better. Not everything that comes up here, not all those quick, witty comebacks that come up here need to come out all the time. It was tough. It was a hard one to learn, but I had to learn it. Remember how I said that these are going to get more difficult the farther down the list we go? A A mature person not only knows what he should do, but he does it. Hebrews 5.14 says that solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. It says they have the difference to recognize between right, or they have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. You guys know that in Proverbs it says that doing what is right is more acceptable and pleasing to God than sacrifice. And at first, as I read that, I was like, wow, that's a cool verse. Doing what is right is more acceptable and pleasing to God than sacrifice. And then I thought about it, and I was like, man, this verse is super plain if you think about it. God would rather have you do what's right the first time than have you do what was wrong when you knew what was right and then need to sacrifice because you sinned. Doing what is right in the first place would solve a whole lot of issues. If you would just do what was right, doing what is right is more acceptable and pleasing to God than sacrifice. He would much rather have you do the right thing the first time than to do the wrong thing and then need to ask for forgiveness later. See, there's this, have you ever heard this saying that knowing is half the battle? 
right? I'm, a lot of people have. It's the same way when you talk about doing what's right versus what is wrong. Knowing what is right is half the battle, but in this part, it's the easy half. It's real easy to know what the right thing to do, and sometimes it's real hard to do the right thing. I had a teacher in high school, if you guys are from the community and roughly my age, you probably know Mr. Shilb. I loved Mr. Shilb. He had this saying that it's never too late to do the right thing, and I loved that. And he would actually give you extra credit points if you simply wrote that on the top of your paper when you turned it in or your test. You would get extra credit points just for writing it's never too late to do the right thing. And I love that because he's saying no matter how far you go down this road, it's never too late to do the right thing, turn around and come back. He had a great story and he was very much right when he said it's never too late to do the right thing. But we have to start with knowing the right thing. You have to learn what is right, what is wrong, and what's the difference between them. See, the problem that we are all dealing with is doing the right thing. We generally know the right thing, but we sometimes lack the follow-through to do the right thing. Right? So James, in James chapter 4, verse 17, says, Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So now we've not only learned that it is more acceptable and pleasing to God to do the right thing than it is to sacrifice. Now we've learned that it is actually sin to know the right thing and then not do it. So if you ever wondered if you're sinning because you knew what you were supposed to do but didn't do it, the answer is yes, you were sinning. And God would have much rather had you do the right thing in the first place than now have to come back and ask for forgiveness later. If you would just do the right thing the first time, a lot, a lot, a whole lot of problems can be just completely skipped. Not just solved. You wouldn't have even had to go through them if you would just do the right thing now. And it's never too late to start doing that right thing. You can start today and you will skip a whole bunch of problems later on in your life no matter where you are in life. My last point, insight number five, Fernando, if you could come play for a little bit is a mature person desires to become better. So Hebrews chapter 6 says, so let us stop go over, going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. It's Hebrews 6.1. As I was talking about, as I was thinking and praying about a mature person and how to end this, the desire to become better. I was like, man, mature people are constantly growing, right? They, they're never satisfied at this level. They always want to be better. They always want to do better. They always want to move forward. They always want to get better. And I was like, man, what would be a great example of that? And then... I remembered something that I learned a long time ago just from, I've had like 35,000 jobs, I think, in my life. I, it's weird. I've, and I generally worked like eight of them all at once. Um, one of the things that I did was I was a landscaping person for the city of Sedalia, right? And I did this in high school. And we had these plants, and they had this condition called stem rot. Anybody deal with plants, farmers, agriculture, and never dealt with stem rot? 
out a couple people. So stem rot is where a plant that produces flowers or produces fruit has the fruits or flowers that just die and wilt while they're on the stem. And then I was like, as I was, as I was prepping, God just put stem rot in my head. And I was like, stem rot? What in the world? How am I going to relate this to that? And I, then I got thinking, if we're plants, right? Like if we view ourselves as the plant and we view ourselves as constantly growing, right? Because that's a plant. A plant will grow indefinitely. It will constantly either grow up or grow out unless you trim it, right? And the plants do, plants do what they do and they produce fruit or flowers, We'll go with fruit in this instance. And if we're supposed to produce fruit, that's great. And when we start producing fruit, and then it just rots on the vine. It never goes anywhere. It's pointless. It's useless. Right? That's stem rot. It's a fungus that gets in the soil, and then it corrupts the plant. How many times do we have fungus that gets in our soil and corrupts us? And see, here's the thing is it's contagious. My stem rot can lead to your stem rot. Me not being mature can lead to you being immature. Right? And here's the other thing about stem rot is it can just live in the soil for years. It's not something that you just trim the plant and then, okay, hey, it's done. Everybody's happy. We can move on. The only way to remove stem rot is to actually remove the root of the infection. And that's kind of how I wanted to end today is a mature person has the desire to become better, but sometimes becoming better requires work. Sometimes it requires getting on your hands and knees, getting your hands dirty, and removing the thing that is causing you to fail. Sometimes there's something in your life that you didn't even know you needed to deal with because you thought you dealt with it 10 years ago, but it's still leading to a failure today. Because this, like stem rot, it can live in the soil if you don't actually remove the root. So as we close today, that's kind of what I want you to think about. We're going to call the prayer partners forward in a little bit. But is there anything in your life that is standing between you and maturity? Is there anything in your life that maybe you thought you dealt with, but you haven't? And you really need to deal with it. So I'm going to pray here in a minute, and then we're going to call the prayer partners forward. But I want you to start thinking about this now. What is standing in the way between you and maturity? So let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church podcast. We pray that this message was a blessing and an encouragement to you. 